Hello, everybody. Welcome back to I Came With Fire podcast. Tonight, we have on a very special guest, but first, we'll give our self sit selfless plug here for shameless plug here for red clover coffee um we have discount code i came with fire podcast you can use our promo code came with fire for 10 percent off your order head over to redclovercoffee.com um currently drinking their blackberry brandy but all their stuff is really really good uh, so heading on over there get some coffee but tonight like i said we've got a very special guest here who definitely is an, a, a living legend in in his uh, career field i know i could see your face but it's it's true um, but I'll let him let him talk about himself. He's very interesting life. He's written some really great books. Uh, but uh, we'd like to introduce Dan Schilling. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, I was I was lured in by "I Came with Fire" as a title because I thought that was a unique title for a podcast, and uh, there's a lot of anthropology behind that, I assume. And so I'm just happy to be Absolutely. here and appreciate you guys, you know, seeking yeah. me out. Yeah, so the uh, the name is uh, kind of a Prometheus reference, basically about Prometheus bringing down fire and you know teaching humans and using fire. You know, this is like a analogy for knowledge. So, and then obviously, you know, like you said, anthropology. You know, fires change the way human beings have come to be, right? So, but that's what it is. Fire is like that analogy for knowledge. So, I'm a big fan of knowledge and fire for sure me too i can't i don't have my books behind me um like you do they're right in front of me but i i do i enjoy reading and and learning very much just like you do so maybe yeah, i have to periodically purge my my bookshelves i i'm stuck I'm, I'm actually probably closing in on one and then a bunch of books go to libraries and then a handful go downstairs but i i run out of bookshelf space every couple of years yeah, me too. I've got them double road and then stacked in front, like sideways. You know what I mean? Just however I can shove books in there is is how it is. So, yeah, there are there are boxes of books downstairs. Yeah. Probably another dozen. I, so. I just you know, like you, when we were talking before. You said you know everybody gets their information here on the phone, but like I I like having you know the pages, and I like being able to turn the pages instead of like reading on my phone or a Kindle or whatever like that. So that's why I don't mind spending the money on books, but. Yeah, I know Zach. Well, you can read too, can't you? I can read. Yeah, not very well, um, but I can read. I uh, I tend to be the audiobook though guy. I, I drive mm-hmm. a lot for work, obviously, being in recruiting. So right. I just I just listen as I go. They are so popular. I half of my book sales are now Audible, and uh, I found that really intriguing because like Brandon, I mean, I, there's something about the tactile aspect of a book. It's haptic. Mm-hmm. It gives you feedback. If it's a soft book, you can twist it. If it's a hardback, it's got that solid feel. And the other thing about a real book is when you give a book to somebody, that gesture is a human connection that is very significant throughout time. You know, like that, it, it, yeah. it bonds you in, to some degree with, with the person who has presented it to you. And it doesn't matter what you do with an audio book or, a, you know, a Kindle reader. Like there's none of that is there. And mm-hmm. I mark the shit out of my books. Like if it's a good book, it's got a lot of tabs in it, you know? So yeah. I'll write in the margins. I'll do the tab thing. But to what you said, like um, my my maternal grandfather, the first thing I my first big memory with him is him gifting me a book on King Tut and ancient Egypt when I was a kid. 
And I remember that vividly and, you know, that, that memory of receiving that book and him sitting down with me and, and looking at it, that has it's stuck with me my whole life. And I, I was probably in first grade when that happened. So, you know, it's been a long time and I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, and here's the other thing I think about books, um, as opposed to video media, even this format, which is grown in popularity because I think it does have an impact on people. There's real dialogue and people can, it's conversant and you can, you can wander around and capture a lot of information. But the thing about, you know, streaming services or feature films, you may have movies that resonate with you and their favorites forever, but I've never heard anybody come out of a theater and go, that movie changed my life. I know so many people who've had their lives changed or saved by books. And I'm one of those people. It's not hyperbole to say, a book no. saved my life. And so yeah. that's the power of, of the written word as a way to convey information and share stories. Totally agree. And speaking of books, you know, we, we have, I have two of yours here. Um, the first one I read was um, Alone at Dawn, which I know we'll get into um, a very, very important book. I feel like about Master Sergeant John Chapman. Um, but, but first, uh, you got him, his cover of it has him on the side of a mountain. And I recently put up a picture of you in some mountains too, um, with a parachute, some skis. So you want to tell us a little bit more about speed running, what that is? Because I had never heard of it until, until you. So, so speed riding or speed flying is, um, speed it's a form of parachuting. Um, and those are two different aspects of the same sport. And it uses a, a much smaller version of a paraglider. So it's very mm-hmm. parabolic. It's got an arc to it, as, as opposed to like most skydiving parachutes or halo rigs, which are kind of square. Right. And, um, and it's a way of terrain flying with skis on. And so like I was flying this morning uh, up here in Alta because that's kind of where I, I skulk around the mountains here. Um, and it's just a really great way to get flow. It's, to me, it's a lot more like surfing than say skiing is the surfing or or and it's or it's, and it's not like skydiving which i don't do anymore because I, I find skydiving really boring now and i don't base jump hardly anymore because if you do that long enough it'll kill you and it, i'm lucky enough to be alive anyway so for yeah. me this is a way to get some i can air out as my wife calls it like why don't you go air out a little bit so i'll grab my speed wing and then i just ski up the mountain for an hour and a half or two hours and then yeah hit one of my peaks you toss out a wing and then you just ski fast. The next thing you know, you're flying. And it's like, it's not like awesome. super speedy, 20 yeah. to maybe 40 or 50 miles an hour, depending. That sounds like a lot of fun in uh, like a big adrenaline rush. You kind of sound like an adrenaline junkie a little bit. Um, well, I prefer the term adrenaline enthusiast, I think, to okay. junkie. But but really, sure. I don't get a lot of, I don't get a lot of real adrenaline from that. I get a lot of freedom. I get a lot of flow and it's very peaceful for me to be flying along about 30 miles an hour, just cruising. You know, sometimes, sometimes you're flying, you know, like I can shoot off a cliff, like so I can ski lines cause I'm skiing with the wing up. So I'm most, yeah. sometimes you're skiing and just keeping the wing inflated. Sorry about the hand gestures. It's like, how I steer. Oh, no, you're good. And, and, and then, you know, other times you're, you're flying the canopy and you're, you're maybe touching down with your skis or you're not touching the ground at all, but it allows me to like, I can bank over some cliffs uh, up here in a place called Hellgate off of Sugarloaf or Mount Baldy. Up, these are two mountains outside of Alta Ski Resort, mm-hmm. um, and like things I could never ski, I can just ski them right down and then shoot straight off of that, you know, and spiral down and hit some more terrain. So it's very, 
but it's it's actually more peaceful than it is adrenaline. I don't get a lot of adrenaline out of it. I don't think. I could believe that because obviously it's going to be very scenic, just where you're doing this at, and then you know it's what you do to decompress, and you know it made me yeah, want solve to try problems, it. right? Yeah, plot problems. Yeah, yeah, right. That does. That sounds like a lot. A lot of fun. I the I like that feeling of like floating. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. I feel like that's probably pretty, pretty, uh, common feeling when you're doing something like that. It looks like a lot. And that's why I think it's a lot like surfing because surfing is, it's surfing is gravity, right? Mm -hmm. You're, you're going down the face of a wave and the wave is just pushing you along and it provides this bank that provides this gravity and there's a flow with that. You can arc up on the wave and do whatever. And I, yeah, I sort of grew up doing some of that as a kid. Uh, when I was very young, I grew up at the mm-hmm. beach, and uh, this is this is really similar to me. It's a it's a feeling of you're you're connected and simultaneously not connected to the mountain. And I the mountains these mountains where I live are really important and peaceful for me. Nice. So uh, what? I would assume, go ahead, Zach. I would assume it's kind of similar to like paragliding. I have a buddy who paraglides. And uh, it can get real high. And he says there's just something special about kind of just cruising and, like, taking your hand out and, like, touching a cloud. Or, like, and then coming back down and just, like, cruising with birds. Like, or drones, I guess. Um, so he kind of has, like, this thing where he uh, uh, he, he says he really enjoys it. It's very peaceful. Uh, I was going to ask you, though, how far have you, like, gone in distance, like, in the air? Have you gotten pretty well, far? So it, it's not like a paraglider. I've never paraglided i don't know anything about okay. paragliding and um and this it's is, a, yeah, paragliding is kind of a regulated sport and so but this yeah. is this has to have speed you're not going to ever get lift and fly up over a mountain with a speed wing there's mm-hmm. there's an angle of attack and you've got a margin of high and a low and you can fly in that envelope right so anywhere in between those two it's depending and uh like any parachute it's got a glide path and um and there's tabs and all that stuff so i i think there could be some comparisons but this is this is much faster, you know, paragliding is yeah. like, you can just sort of sit and kite and float off the top of a ridge. That does not mm-hmm. happen with a speed wing. Like the, the lowest speed I think I can probably fly that thing is maybe 20 miles an hour. And okay. um, so it, as you're stalling it out, you can, you can bleed off that speed like any, like any wing. That's how a par- an airplane lands. Right. So, mm-hmm. but a really flying, it needs, it needs airflow to be moving to keep it, to keep itself pressurized. So this anyway, so, cool. sort of a adrenaline enthusiasm you've probably had your whole life. I mean, is this kind of what got you into making the decision when you were younger to, to go into the military? Just kind of yeah, actually, out? ironically or serendipitously, maybe. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, I joined I joined the army because I wasn't that smart of a guy. You know, so I started as an 11B, which I loved. By the way, mm-hmm. it was a great way to start your career, and it's fun to poke fun at the army. But um, for me, I was the girl I was dating at the time. Uh, had reached into my chest and grabbed my heart and crushed it and pulled it out while I was standing there. And I was looking for something to do. And I met this army recruiter who told me, we will pay you to jump out of airplanes. And it had never occurred to me to do that. And I'll tell you what, man, I like, if you don't know anything else about me, I like parachutes, right? Yeah, so (laughs) weird. uh, It was, and I found my way I felt into this meritocracy, which is the U.S. military, mm-hmm. which is superior to all of the militaries in the world. It just is, Hands down. Uh, both in equipment and in training and experience and in architecture and structure. It's so effective. But it's this place where you know, I'm a middle class family kid. We didn't have a lot of money, but we weren't poor. 
and it didn't matter where you came from. I was hanging out with these Puerto Rican guys from New Jersey and rednecks from Wyoming. And, you know, there's, yeah. there's me and like, it didn't matter where you came from. You could just blend. And the harder you worked, um, the better and the better you got at things, the more opportunities would come your way. And there's not a lot of organizations or places for people in their teens or 20s that you can find that. And the downside, as I'm sure we'll talk about here in the podcast, but uh, I I found a place that worked for me pretty well. Yeah. So obviously you said you were in the infantry Um, is what like kind of decide made helped you make the decision to go into combat control though like the transition obviously like you know from the air force or well, from the army to the air force so for me the transition was it, it's another like many things in all of our lives and i'm sure you mm-hmm. guys can experience this and everybody listening to this podcast will have similar experiences there are these points in your life that are crossroads or opportunities that suddenly just appear. Mm-hmm. And when you take those opportunities, it makes all the difference in your life. So I went TDY on a training trip as I was a corporal now in a Pathfinder platoon. So I'm working with helicopters and mm-hmm. jumping static line, which I thought was really cool. And, um, and I'm, I'm having a good time. And I went TDY with two combat controllers. This was in the eighties, mind you. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had NBGs, which we didn't have in my platoon, because no one had NBGs in the mid-80s, except for special ops and some pilots. And okay. so I went out with the 8th SOS, 8th Special Operations Squadron, C-130s, and two combat controllers. And I am hanging, and I got to go on this trip because I was a high performer, and my unit sent me as a Benny to go with these two dot dudes. Mm-hmm. I'd never heard of combat control, because no one's ever heard of combat control. No. That's its problem. And, yeah. and we were hanging out, doing things I had never seen, and I'm I'm, I'm so I'm, I'm pinging these guys. I'm like, what the hell are you guys? What do you do? And and Pete Neal, the guy who got me into combat control has since passed away, mm. said, well, you know, we're Halo and we're scuba. And and I'll never forget this. We get pro pay. I'm like, well, OK, I'll bite. What's pro pay? And he said, that's cool guy pay. And I went, <laughs> I'm in. I want cool guy pay. Yeah. And I want to be Halo and scuba, too. <laughs> and so I, I found my way to an Air Force recruiter. Who treated me like a human again, cool. which was which was a very cool experience. And this guy had never heard of combat control either. And he was a recruiter. And this was 1987. Oh, wow. And he looked it up and he goes, Oh yeah, it does exist, but you can't enlist for it. You have to just come in, take your chances, and you have to try out. And then if you don't really? make it, you know, the Air Force yeah, that's how it was and, back then. Yeah, wow. you're gonna mow lawns. And so yeah. but um so but I said, well, I'm on an army contract for another like two or three years. And he said, I have this is the Air Force. He's like, no problem. Here's this paperwork. If you can get your commander to sign this release, I can inter-service transfer you out of the army and into the Air Force. So I'm back to my commander, who was a pretty good guy. And I said, hey, I think I'm meant to go do this other thing. And uh, in Air Force Common Control, and blah, blah, blah. And they didn't really want to let me go. And uh he goes, Talking. well, I'll tell you what, if you can get the Air Force to take you, I'll sign the paperwork. I whipped it out, threw it across the table. I'm like, there it is, man. And to his credit, he signed it. And I ended up wow. in the Air Force as a trying out for a combat controller. And again, never looked back. It was a, it was a really great transition and it was a great path to get there. Yeah. Man, I tell it's you what, funny it, you said that uh, the recruiter didn't know. I was just talking with Gresham on the phone. 
earlier this week when we were talking about you coming on. And I was like, I'm a recruiter, and I don't even know the difference between a combat controller and a JTAC. Like, I don't know the difference, and, I, and I'm and i a recruiter. So yeah. maybe, maybe you can elaborate what the difference is. Cause well, I it's very easy, know. actually, because JTAC, a joint terminal attack controller, is a certification. Mm-hmm. Like being certified on a, a weapon system if you're a cop or – a okay. um, a type of aircraft or a procedure on an airplane. Right. A, a Halo Jumpmaster is a certification. JTAC merely means that you have the ability without, if you're enlisted, uh, without any officer oversight, to release ordnance onto a battlefield under your control that is coordinated with the aircraft who also owns the bomb. But at the end of the day, if it doesn't hit something or it hits the wrong thing, the guy on the ground is going to eat that. And so mm-hmm. it's really a certification that allows you to deliver air power on the battlefield by form of uh, close air support, bombs, missiles, so bullets, for, whatever. Forgive my, forgive my ignorance then, right? Because, you know, yeah. what it seems like to me is to be CCT, you have to be, you have to have the JTAC certification, but then you have tactical air control party and some of them can be JTAC certified or JTAC certified, but not yeah. all of them. Like what's the difference? I think that's the question is like, what's the difference in their job then? Cause it, they seem extremely similar. There are two different AFSCs, TACP and- They are right. different AFSCs, but they have sure. parallels that are similar. Okay. Cause TACP is an amazing career field to go into. Typically it's aligned with conventional army units or sister service units to provide mm-hmm. that air force or air to ground interface combat mm-hmm. control takes it to a higher level like mm-hmm. so for instance to be a tech p you don't have to actually be parachute qualified either static land or halo or scuba mm-hmm. you know these are, combat controller you have to have all the certifications that everybody you're going to work with in the special operations community have you. because you're going to integrate mm-hmm. into their team so whatever the Australian SAS guys do out of Swanbourne Barracks, if I'm going to integrate with them, tactically, I have to do what they do. If I'm going to work with a SEAL platoon or a ranger company or an ODA from Special Forces, mm-hmm. depending on what you're going to do, you have to have those things. It's why it's the, it's it's this amazingly most versatile force in the world people don't know about it, which is why I wrote Alone at Dawn. Mm-hmm. And so, but that sort of answers your question. The differentiation between TACP and 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 combat control is the level right. of initial training and who you integrate okay. with. Got you. Okay, that makes sense. That's kind of what that I thought, sense. but you know, it. I guess maybe some of those uh, parallels, like you said, kind of created some confusion. I guess about what what the different aspects is. But so, you, what was that like, like going through the training? It sounds like you know you had a good commander who let you 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 switch out, and of course the Air Force recruiter doing his job, making it sound super easy to get out of there, go from green to blue. But uh, what was that training like? You know, going from the training you'd already done, you know, as an eleven Bravo and infantryman, into you know transitioning. What was that like back in the eighties? Combat control got you into that. Well, what was good for me is I had enough experience with a couple of years under my belt to understand the military and how things worked, and I knew. Like, for instance, whatever they put in front of you, no matter how hard it was, it had to be doable because mm-hmm. people were doing it. So I'd already been conditioned to push my boundaries some. Now, mm-hmm. when I got to the OLH, which was the indoctrination course and the pipeline process we had at the time, mm-hmm. like there was 150 some odd guys that went started into that program. By the time mm-hmm. we got into the first week of real school, there was like 30 some odd of us left by the time 
We finished there eight weeks, six weeks later, there was 15. And by the time I graduated common control school, there were six guys from my original class of 150. That's like a 4% success rate. That's One of the amazing things about combat control is its training pipeline is longer, more mentally demanding, and as physically demanding, and more expensive than any other training pipeline in the world. It is. It's amazing. And it's in the Air Force, and people have no idea these guys exist. And yeah. that became my part of my purpose with the book Alone at Dawn, for speaking for me personally. I, for my co-author was, was John's sister, Lori, and she provided mm-hmm. this you know, background on John. And she had a different purpose. She wanted John to be honored and known around the world. But for me, it was to honor John's legacy and his sacrifice and and, and his exceptional humanism uh, combined with sharing with the world the brotherhood that John was a member of, of this community that the world had never heard of. And that is right. U.S. Air Force right. combat controllers. And I love to say this. The deadliest individual to ever walk a battlefield in 60,000 years of human warfare is an Air Force combat controller. There's nothing true. wrong with being in the Green Parade. These other people do stuff, but you know something? If you need to kill a lot of people in a tactical situation on a battlefield, no one's deadlier than a combat controller. That's true. At the same time, when, when, so, you know, steel platoons and ODAs throughout America's longest war in Afghanistan, like there's many stories of combat controllers who saved the day for these other communities that they're integrated into. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they're working with these great people from those communities. But the thing that really sets us apart from those types of communities is combat control has this deliberate humanitarian role to play as well. We're mm-hmm. the world's first, first responders when the nation of Haiti collapses, for instance, right. or, right. When Fukushima tsunami wipes out, you know, this town and puts this nuclear reactor in peril and shuts down the airport, Air Force combat controllers came and opened the airport on behalf of all Japanese. That's an amazing, it's this amazing humanitarian opportunity. I've been to Hurricane, I didn't go to Katrina, but I sent my guys there and I've been to Rita and Ike, like, and we're saving Americans. Mm -hmm. You know what? Mm -hmm. People don't do that. No, I mean, not like it, that. It's it's your it's the the CCT mottos first there, right? You know, so you guys are yeah. there. That disaster happens, and then you guys are landing aircraft to bring supplies. That's true because you know I haven't when uh when we're advertising for uh the episode with Chief Gutierrez, you know, I wrote that that line from Gladiator where Maximus you know tells his archers to unleash hell, and then you see all this fire coming down on this Germanic tribe. Like I made that relation because that is that's what you know combat controllers do is you know unleash hell on the enemy. But you know I didn't even consider that other aspect, that humanitarian aspect that you're talking about. That of course you know airplanes bring so much goodness as well to people. You know water supplies, medical supplies, whatever. I didn't even considered that. You know that other half of that your job. And that's the power of the U.S. Air Force. The U.S. Mm-hmm. Air Force is an amazingly versatile and diverse force. But I have to go back and talk about GZ for just a second. Okay. Because Bob Gutierrez, who I respect and I uh, consider a friend, you know, next to John Chapman's uh, experience on that mountain, GZ's, uh, there's a couple of gunfights he's been in that, in my opinion, are Medal of Honor worthy. And his you know, the, the, the one where he got shot in the lung, his collapse, and the mm-hmm. and the, the 18 Delta medics, re, you know, yeah, decompressing his lung and just so he can keep talking twice 
Yeah. That is beyond heroism. And if that had been a Navy SEAL, it would have been an instant Medal of Honor. And the Air Force does not treat their heroes the same way the other services do. It's one of my gripes about the Air Force. I agree. I'm, I love the Air Force. It is my service. Even though I've, I've joined the Army twice and the Air Force each twice, the Air Force is my service. Mm-hmm. One of the great things about not being Lieutenant Colonel Schilling anymore, but just being Dano, the author is, like, I can poke the Chief of Staff of the Air Force or the Secretary of the Air Force, like, in the chest and go, I think you're screwing this up. And I get access yeah. to those people sometimes, which I never would have yeah. as either right. Staff Sergeant Dano or Lieutenant Colonel Schilling. So, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it, but we, we don't do a good job of promoting heroism in the Air Force. I mean, we provide this very reluctant and higher standard for heroism. Now, what that says to anyone who's listening is if you see a guy with an, with an Air Force Silver Star, that guy has done something truly remarkable that mm-hmm. quite possibly would be a service cross in another service. And it's unfortunate, but, um, you know, no, it, I can't change it. I'm it, doing my best. Well, it's good that you have those those people that you can talk to. But I mean, even at you know lower level decorations in the Air Force, you know, it's it is, is you have to fight tooth and nail just to get somebody. And and this is you know in, in no way the same as something like you know what what Chief Gutierrez did. You know, it. But like we have our defenders who they go out and they do things that end up inevitably saving somebody's life or stopping something from happening. And you know, Greater Air Force looks at it and says, "Well, that was just your job." You know what I mean. And even though it's it's not you're supposed, it, yes, to do. you're supposed to do this. And, you know, if they do end up getting something, you know, it's like a, an achievement medal, which which is great. And it's great that they get to be recognized, but it's not the caliber that it should be. If you're putting yourself intentionally in harm's way, you end up saving somebody's life or preventing something bad from happening. You know, people are worthy of recognition and they should be. I, I just feel like in general, the Air Force is very bad at that. And you said it when we were talking before that unless you're a pilot or in that that community of, of flyers, like you kind of just get. I don't shucked off in a way when it comes to stuff like that. And it, it is really unfortunate. I, just think, I think there's a distance to be fair to the flying community. They don't understand it. Mm-hmm. They're in their cockpit and they're doing their thing. And it's my cockpit and I'm in my plane and it's very isolating experience. If I'm a fighter pilot, it's me. If I'm right. a, you know, if I'm the, if I'm the pilot in command of a C-17, you know, and I, you know, I've been flying for five years and I, you know, here I am, I've come up the ranks and, you know, who is that? Who is she behind the cockpit? Okay, maybe that it's understood by these other people across the community. But they look outside that. And it's one of the shortcomings of the Air Force is in the joint world, they tend not to do as well at the leadership levels because the Air Force tends to silo people so much. Mm-hmm. So, you know, an Air Force, I've watched this happen a lot. You watch this Air Force colonel walk into a room with some, some Army and Navy individuals and they they wallflower because they're not as comfortable because they don't have to interact with those other services. Those other mm-hmm. services do this all the time. This is why what's an interesting thing for me as a sort of quasi historian now, or, or a biographer, at least um, that when I see there's, there's a number of one and two star air force generals that are special tactics officers out of combat control. And that mm-hmm. special tactics officer for people listening is, is a, a combat control officer. And they're one and two star generals now, which never happened before. But the Air Force has realized in the joint special ops world, those guys can walk in a room and command respect because they've been to war with these SEALs and Green Berets and Rangers. Yeah. And you put a pilot in that thing and he's like, OK, 
I don't even know what these guys are really talking about. I may have had the education, but I can't go toe to toe either and hold my own against some seal 05 or 06 who's telling me this is what we have to do. Yeah. And Stoke can go, nah, it's not what we're going to do. Right. Uh, you know, or maybe he says, yeah, we can, but it's a, it's a different world. And, and I think that's one of the reasons why these, uh, especially in the, in the TACP combat control and pararescue communities, there is a, there is a shortfall in heroic recognition. And it's, it's been that way for 30 years since I was in Somalia. You know, every steel that went there with us who didn't have any responsibilities, we had four guys there, great guys. Mm-hmm. I, I, I really liked all of these guys. All four of those guys came out of there with silver stars. And I'm like, Man. okay, you know, and I'm looking at my buddy who, Pat Rogers, who's a staff sergeant on the CSAR package with the Rangers that go in on, on uh, um, Cliff Walcott's helicopter, 68, I think is the call sign. It's like, heck, it's a bronze star with valor. That's not right. Yeah. Um, and the Navy has a different standard. I've heard this a lot. And, mm-hmm. and they can do what they want. And I don't care what the Navy does. It's not about yeah, them. The I don't really. Does. It's what the Air Force does. And it pisses me off. And uh, right you. now, I'm, I'm working on upgrading some metals for some guys because great. I think I can. And I'm in a yeah. position that one, and one's my best friend and, and he's dead. And I'm going to, it doesn't matter. I want to get his metal upgraded. That's really and, honorable. Uh, no, it's, it's just, well, you guys, it's not honorable. It, he's my brother. Yeah. Like, he deserves this. Like yes. it, this, it just has to happen, mm-hmm. or not? Maybe I'll have it from the beginning. Yeah. You know. No, I mean you're yeah. you're trying, you know. And what you said before, I think you know the the Air Force and the pilot community kind of put themselves on an island in um on the on their own. But and I definitely want to hear yeah. yeah more about obviously your time in Somalia. Um, but obviously was is it the Air Force's failure to recognize people the way they deserve that kind of drew you to writing about. Um, Master Sergeant Chapman's story? No, no. Okay. In fact, John's Medal of Honor was completely in question when when I really started researching, mm-hmm. coordinating, and writing the book. Okay. And the, I remember the publisher asking me, he goes, what happens if John doesn't get this Medal of Honor? I said, mm-hmm. nothing happens. I'm writing okay. the same book. Yeah. I, you know, I can tell you I validated the fact that he independently, I started from scratch and built my own investigation, did all my research, Got my got a, you know uh, coordination and permissions to 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 access information. Mm-hmm. Um, it helped that I had a, a TS clearance still. To let, I could still look at some things, but I'd seen all this stuff before. Mm-hmm. But it 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 was I felt it had to be written John's story, but for me as important uh, as John's legacy was, no one knew about combat controllers, mm-hmm. and it it just pissed me off. And so when you're a combat controller and you're integrated with Delta Force and you go hunt down Uday and Kisei Hussein, Saddam mm-hmm. Hussein's son, yeah. two guys who deserve to die horribly yeah, because they were terrible people. Yes, they and were. it's like, oh, Delta Force killed those guys. And I'm like, no, they didn't. A guy named Mikey B put those bombs on there and killed those guys. And then still Team Six jumps in, the Maersk Alabama, which is the Captain Phillips movie, and everyone's yeah. see this. It's like... The steel snipers on the fantail killed all the pirates, which is true. It was a steel team six mission. But one of those snipers who killed a pirate is a combat controller named Zeb. And so, you know, you get wow. these. But it's not in the interest of Delta Force to go, well, we didn't kill the guy. 
the Air Force guy did it for us. It's nobody would do that. That's bad no, marketing. It is. But the problem for the combat controller is he gets pushed out in the wash. Mm-hmm. And they become invisible. Now the operators know he's there, and they and they understand to some extent the expertise he brings. All that matters to them is that he can bring it. Mm-hmm. Just like the reciprocal is, if I'm going to train with Delta Force and we're going to do some CQB, those are the best shooters in the world. Uh, and so now I have to shoot competently enough to roll in with that train. So I I've, I've had some great training, but mm-hmm. the fact is those guys are always going to be better shooters than me by this much or that much, whatever it is, because I can rely on them for their expertise to do that. My expertise is to integrate these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyway, I don't know if that. No, it did. And I think chance. in your, your book, you, you did a good job of pairing the story of like, you know, uh, John's life as growing up, you know, um, the story about how he um, was looking after one of the, the girls in his school who had, was special needs and then pairing it with such the, a human, right, such a great human, right. And pairing it, you were pairing it kind of with the birth of combat control, right. And you're talking about its history and, you know, I guess it's like baby steps in, in World War Two, right. And then in Vietnam when the, um, them calling in that the, the plane is flying around and like pointing and be like, Hey, we need this here. And it's just like, you know, the baby steps of combat control and you're pairing it with his life as he was growing up. I thought that, that you did a really, really good job blending that. And, um, I, that was one of the things you talked earlier about. You wanted to make it readable. That to me was an element that was you know very readable and kept me intrigued and, and wanting to read more. Appreciate that. But in fact, it's, it's not really a history of combat control because mm-hmm. what I decided to do in the end was the book starts when John was born Mm-hmm. And it ends when he died, which is mm-hmm. 65 to 2002. Combat mm-hmm. control predates SEALs or Green Berets because we were mm-hmm. born in 53. Yep. And so, um, and, and then as we know, we talked about Bob Gutierrez. And I, I had some his story and Chris Baradat and Dustin Temple, a couple other guys that I really felt probably should be considered for the Medal of Honor, including mm-hmm. GZ. Mm-hmm. And I had a bunch of stories in the book and I, and I cut them all out. But the reason I ultimately did that was because I felt the book started and ended with John. And so it had to start with his life, which is much after combat control started and ended. Even though I, the book came out in 2019, mm-hmm. the book stops in 2002, the stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, it goes back to that, what you said. The reason I, st- I started the book in Laos, in, the, in, in what was all, arguably the secret war in Laos in 65. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting about that, and I've written a screenplay for this, that I, I'm, I'm pitching around, but there's a, a writer's strike, so I can't, I'm not pitching right now because I'm standing... Oh all of my fellow screenwriters, but um, is that, you know, the secret war in Laos on any given day was run by four people. Mm-hmm. Tony Poe, who was a legendary CIA case officer, General Vang Pao, who was the, the, the Hmong general leader, Ambassador Sullivan in Vientiane was, was the U.S. ambassador, and an Air Force sergeant. Mm-hmm. That's who was selecting the targets yeah. on any given day in that secret war in 1965. Yeah, I was... In the most bombed country in the history of the planet, the fourth guy who was really running the war was probably a combat controller. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was People on should a... know that. They, they should. And I was on a, a long drive when I first started reading this book. I was in the passenger seat. And when I was reading that bit about about that in Laos, I, I was blown away because I had never heard that before. You know, to your credit, like you said, you know, 
people need to know. But that blew me away. I, I literally had to close the book and sat there and pondered on that for a second that this dude was doing what he was doing, you know, and no one's ever heard of him. I was like, that that's it's honestly one of the most wild things I'd ever heard of, you know, yeah, at all. You know, and it, the list goes on. The first guy mm -hmm. to jump on a South Pole, mm -hmm. comic controller. Mm -hmm. And not because it was some wazoo thing and why they only sent one guy, I don't know. <laughs> but, but but they were having problems with dropping stuff on onto the Antarctic Peninsula and they were yard selling crap all over the place. Mm -hmm. And they're like, we need someone who can work these drops for us and we need to get these supplies in before the weather closes in and they're this guy with 35 jumps which at the time seemed like a lot but to a guy like me with like i don't know four or five thousand jumps i you know like that's not a, that's nothing man mm -hmm. and they were asking questions i hope this parachute opens in these antarctic you know <laughs> yeah way below freezing temperatures what's going to happen when i leave the airplane the guy didn't know through it i'm just going to jump we'll yeah. figure it out and he saved the day dropping stuff on, you know, everything's hitting the target. And the list goes on and on and on about all these amazing things about combat controllers. And, uh, and that goes back to the heart of, for me, I didn't really want to write that book because mm -hmm. there's some controversy around what happened with John. Right. I'm a very peaceful person. Um, I, I just finished up 31 years of a lot of violence and frustration and all the stuff that comes from special ops. Mm -hmm. And I'm getting to ski every day and I'm hanging out with my wife. Two things that I really like to do. And, uh, but I felt I had to do this book and, um, and even though I didn't want to, I'm glad I did. It took me two and a half years, seven days a week, basically to write this book, but, um, it was worth it. No, well, I'm glad I, you did I owe it to these guys cause I was in a position to do it. Right. So you were talking before about writing screenplays. I've seen like kind of teased over the past couple of years that they're going to make your book into a movie. Um, I've even yep. seen people throw out um, Jake Gyllenhaal as the actor who would portray uh, John. Uh, he was, that Jake was attached for like a year. Okay. And uh, and then Hollywood is a very odd place. We could do a whole podcast on Hollywood. We could. I like it. It's kind of fun to go down there because everybody's very nice to me. And I and I, I get to like hang out with Lawrence Fishburne, who I have a huge oh, wow. man crush on. He's an amazing guy. God, no, just, yeah. My wife's like, you can't leave me for Lawrence Fishburne. I'm like, well, he doesn't really know who I am that well. I just hang out with him <laughs> on set. Yeah. But um, it's, it's a really interesting place. And we'll so Jake left to do some other movie about a okay. JTAC named John. I, I saw things. that. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's okay. I think I like Jake. I never spoke to him, but I thought he would do okay. But the studio has decided we really want to go for a bigger name than Jake, a bigger okay. actor. And they, okay. and so the president of the studio is a guy I really like has told me on a number of occasions and he's made like 40 feature films. He said, I think this is, this is the only movie I've ever been a part of that I think will be an Oscar contending movie and that's oh, wow. what we want for this movie so we don't want to compromise ourselves on anything so when jake parted ways it was actually okay and um yeah i wish that guy the best I, I, but sure. i don't know him, so yeah, i don't yeah. really care about him that much uh what i want is i want the right actor who can play john um because this movie will change the view, the public's view of the air force i guarantee yeah. it I, I what think put SEALs on the map in the public's mm -hmm. eye was the movie U.S. Navy SEALs in 1990. Before that right. movie, SEALs existed, but people were like, oh, SEALs, they sound kind of cool. That movie came out, bam, Charlie Sheen and the God Gun and all this other crazy bullshit that doesn't even exist. And that's yeah. what a movie does. But it captured the mm -hmm. public's imagination. 
this movie is not like any other war movie. Uh, the mm-hmm. screenplay is brilliant. It is it is not like any other war movie. And when it comes out, people will go, "That's the Air Force," and that is that is my goal. Is that the and so it's not even about combat control at that point. I yeah. want the public to go, "That's the U.S. Air Force." Because if you ask a man or woman on the street and you say, "Say the first thing that comes to mind when I say U.S. Navy," they'll say ships and seals every yeah, single right. time. I want the, I want Americans to go airplanes and combat controllers. That's what yeah. I want. That would be pretty sick. I was going to uh, say earlier, like the Air Force has a huge identity crisis, and I think that goes into always. its problem of like recognizing people and then being being known in the public. Like when you think of Green, you think of obviously it's like disgruntled, ready to go, battle-hardened person. When you think of the Army, you think they could be anywhere at any time. When you think of the Navy, you think of, obviously, boats, ships, humanitarian stuff. But a lot of people, when they think of the Air Force, because the Air Force runs as like a, almost like an organization, like a company, um, that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't fit well. It doesn't fit in the military scope. And I think that's why we run into the issue of our leaders not doing well with others and stuff, because... Uh, we're very individualized because like you're saying with the pilot in his cockpit in the army, if a dude fails a PT test, everyone's doing PT together for like a month. Uh, yeah. And they're already, we're doing that in the air force. You fill a PT test. They just go, it's your fault. Here's your paperwork. And no one else even knows about it. So it, there's not a lot of like team orientation when it comes to the air force. It's very big on do your job to the best of your ability. And that's it. Well, so yeah. structurally, that's right. I agree. There, there's, there are organizational reasons behind why that unfortunate outcome happens. But let me, mm-hmm. let me, let me change, let me change your perspective a little bit. I hope, and tell you okay. why you two guys and any of your listeners who are in the Air Force are pissing me off. Okay. <laughs> Here's why you're pissing me off. We're ready because because you're in the United States Air Force, you have responsibility for the most powerful uh, force ever created on planet Earth because you own two-thirds of the U.S. nuclear triad. We give the Navy a paltry third, and we don't even trust the Army with nuclear weapons anymore. So you own this, 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 the responsibility for all this power that could destroy the Earth because that is the most effective nuclear power on the planet. Mm -hmm. We also know now that you have the deadliest individual to walk a battlefield, in the history of human warfare. Mm-hmm. All these things, and you have the most dominant air power for strike and air-to-air combat and delivery to any point on the planet. No other service can do that. And yet, at the same time, this is why you're pissed me off, you, we, all these Air Force people act like wallflowers. Again, it's like, well, the Chair Force and all this stuff. And my response to that is, bullshit. Hey, F you, man. This, yeah. I think it's great you're in the Navy, you're in the Army. Good for you. Your service pales in comparison to the power of my service. And all you have to do is start walking around and believing that, and it'll change your personal dynamic. I'm a big believer in that. If I have any superpower, it's that I can connect dots that other people don't see. And I, this is my – I like to beat the Air Force up. I've told this to secretaries of the Air Force and chiefs of staff. All. I, 
I great. agree with you, man. I wish more of our leadership would push that around and say those things because I feel yeah. like it's almost like it's a it's it's taboo to behave that way, especially I, the past couple of years. And I don't understand it. You know, I, I'm again, like I've said before, you know, I work with other services and I was deployed when mm-hmm. I've been at other units. And, you know, there there are things about other services that I like that they do. But at the end of the day, I will tell you this, that. Our guys that I work with, the, the defenders left and right, to, to the left and the right of me, are way better trained than their MP or Master at Arms brothers and sisters. You know what I mean? And so it's just like we do. We 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 are a great service. We are the most lethal service that mm-hmm. that the United States military has, and we don't. We we walk around like use your term wallflowers. You know, I just I don't understand it. But it's not think, just the. It's the most powerful force ever created on planet Earth. Yeah, ever, it's, it's the most powerful force ever. Service. It's yeah. the most powerful thing ever yeah. created. I'll that get it right. The Air Force has responsibility for. Yeah, man. I think. That's I think true. Dan, you would like you would like coming hanging out with me while I'm doing my recruiting duties because I do give off that kind Dan's of perception. I'll be right talking. Now. Yeah, I'll be talking with the Marines and I'll be like, "Man, I'm the world's greatest recruiter in the world's greatest branch." It's like what I say on like my social media and stuff i'll say like would you rather settle for anything less than the world's greatest no come join the air force like that's how i recruit that's how i get my people through the door and maybe that's why i make a goal <laughs> the marine corps does the same thing the marine corps is very yeah. effective at, at, at marketing and branding itself be the elite mm-hmm. and they are and it goes back to what we were talking about medals earlier you know mm-hmm. you, when you were talking about oh so and so who's security forces you know she's an airman does off and does this great thing and the Air Force is like, that's just your job. That's the Marine Corps mentality as well. And mm-hmm. so they get shortchanged on medals, I feel, a lot of the time too. But they do a they great do. job of like, to, a, to, a, to a, a young man or woman on the street, they're like, ooh, that's the most prestigious service. And it is very prestigious. But there's a reason that they have to market so hard is not many people re-enlist in the Marine Corps. But they're not yeah, second they're the lowest, termers. Yeah, and yeah, there's they're the lowest it's a smaller percentage. And in the Air Force, people come in and go, I can hang out here for 20 or 30 years. Yeah. Yep. You know, one thing that the, the Marine Corps, the Navy, and the Army are really good at is their heritage. And I think the Air Force is really bad at that. And we have a lot of great people within our heritage and some great stories about how the Air Force came to be. But you go ask, in my opinion, in my experience, you go ask the average airman what the Air Force's birthday is, or if you ask them who Billy Mitchell is, or, or whatever, you know, they won't know. But you go ask a Marine, the Marine's birthday, or you go ask them who Chesty Puller is, they will tell I mean, I'm an airman, and I know who Chesty Puller is, you know, like, they will tell you who Her it birthday, is. Birthday, 10 November, 1775, the year the Marine Corps came alive. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Air Force doesn't have stuff like that, and we should. I wish we wish we would. And anytime I've tried to like push that around, it, it, I don't know. It kind of falls on deaf ears. But um, you know, it is what it is. Yep. I guess I can tell you, September eighteenth, nineteen forty-seven. I know, know you can, Dan, for sure. Well, I no, never, I never is, doubted you. <laughs> well, because it also created the CIA. Both the it Air Force did. and the CIA right. were created by the National Security Act of nineteen. Yes, it was. Yep. That's something that so was because a, we actually are the CIA. We just don't tell people. Hey, man, stop giving away the secrets, dude. You oh, sorry, 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 sorry. <laughs> we'll edit that out. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. So, so where do you see, obviously, the big 
the big thing right now where we're talking about this the next fight right where do you see cct's fitting into that because to me i don't just see it being like cct's uniquely perform a duty that no one else i feel like on earth can perform and not even to that degree right so i don't when i say that you know they're going to be vital i think that's an understatement i think that when if that happens and when it's over we'll look back and say cct's were what made the difference and that's my opinion on that but where do you see cct fitting in they make a big difference tactically because mm-hmm. they're this this force at the pointy end of the stick, which is mm-hmm. not strategy. Mm-hmm. But what will happen in the wars or the the conflicts short of war that are going to come for us in the future? And I can't predict where those will yeah. be any no. better than anyone else. No. Uh, you know, I actually think China is not a threat the way most people immediately go. It's a big threat. Mm-hmm. China's not expansionist. What China expects is respect, and they want to have – Influence in a sphere that they think matters to them primarily mm-hmm. doesn't make it better. But but what will happen, I think, is the war in Afghanistan and to some extent in Iraq, special operations was the supported element. We be, we weren't the guys supporting the big effort. We were the big effort. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of focus mm-hmm. on all these things, mm-hmm. which is why you see all these heroism from from Green Berets and, and Rangers and combat controllers and you know, like, people who've done things heroically on the battlefield. And our relationship with the fighter pilot community really thickened during the war because it was the only game in town. Yeah. Like, they're not shooting down MiGs. They want to drop bombs on bad guys. They're mm-hmm. working with the JTAC on the ground. What will happen in the future is the diversity of our skills will have to come back to the forefront. What I mean by that is dropping bombs on bad guys, that's one skill. That's a one-trick pony. A combat controller's real power and value in any campaign is his versatility. Because he can do anything with anyone, tactically, insertion, extraction, operating, shoot, move, communicate, all that stuff. Well, he communicates better than anybody else. But anyway, mm-hmm. is is bringing, you know, how do you put a C-130 on a highway somewhere in Ukraine and know that that plane can land there? There's so much more science behind that. You don't just go, oh, the highway will hold a 60,000-pound aircraft with yeah. another 40,000 pounds of stuff in it or whatever the, the metrics are, like, there's so much science behind then also having to be an air traffic controller and knowing everyone's call signs and know the limitations of these allied aircraft and know what the effects of all these bombs are, allied and U.S., and know the comm matrix and know the fire and maneuver plan and be able to integrate with that commander and be able to still shoot with the guys that I'm working with and carry more weight than anybody else and still go without sleep, food, or water. Like, the pressure on that one guy is so high, but they're so versatile. But mm-hmm. therein lies the quandary again, because what happens is you go out there and slay all the bad guys for them with a bunch of GBU-84s or whatever, GBU-12, whatever you got. I can't, I can't remember my bombs anymore, but it doesn't matter. You're good. Like, I'm an old guy. Who knows how much I understand anymore? But if you <laughs> go out there and, and slay the bad guys, it's yay team. We all did this together. Right. If you drop one bomb errantly, everyone goes, that Air Force guy did it. Right. They will hang cool. you in a minute. And so you carry all this responsibility as usually, and you guys can appreciate this, the lowest ranking guy because the yeah. Air Force promotes yeah. so slowly. Yeah. It is an, it's immense. But but therein for me and guys I think like me was the real the challenge and the satisfaction of being able to do what anybody else could do and mm-hmm. still just walk away without all the credit. Because in our team room we're like yeah, the guys I was with, Army or Navy, whatever, and they screwed this thing up. We'll yeah. talk about it in our team room. You're not going to poke them in the eye. Yeah. But at the yeah. end of the day, it's like 
yeah, man, I can, I can bring anything that those guys can bring. And that's a very satisfying thing. The other thing I think that all the great combat controllers I've known, Bob Gutierrez included in this, uh, John Chapman probably, but I didn't really know John very well. We, we didn't really know each other. Okay. Um, I'd seen him around a bit. Is that they're all very intellectually curious people. And that's why they can connect dots. And I think those are the kind of things that have allowed me to be successful in my life outside of the military, you know, writing books or writing music and like my world record thing and, you know, starting businesses. The and, and just I get flown around the world to speak. I was just in Ramstein two months ago mm-hmm. speaking on resilience. And I think I get to do those things because of the things I learned and, and the means of which I learned to communicate with people and break down barriers to integrate with other folks. All those things have come about through this really unique opportunity that was Air Force Combat Control. Now you're a very good speaker, for sure. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. I wish somebody would have uh, set up a resiliency class for me with you out there because I'll tell you what, the resiliency classes that I've been to are pretty much just uh, watch this slide and uh, random scene oh, and find another squadron. Yeah, yeah exact slide. Death yeah, by PowerPoint. Death by PowerPoint, absolutely. It's going to make you less resilient after that PowerPoint. <laughs> Definitely make you tired. Yeah. So, Dan, you kind of talked about how, you know, you've done a lot of great stuff since you've been out of the military and stuff. Um, obviously, oh, trans- I think. Okay. So, Dan, uh, you talked earlier about how kind of like uh, how you set yourself up for success and stuff outside of the military after you transitioned out. Um, transitioning from the military to civilian life, right, could be a significant challenge for veterans. So, I was wondering if you could kind of speak about your personal journey and share any advice you have uh, navigating this for veterans, especially because when they're in the military, uh, you know, they kind of have that sense of belonging, that purpose. Uh, that brotherhood, um, and that can be really hard to find or keep going after they get out. There, there's stories of veterans who would rather to have said that they would rather be in a foxhole in Iraq than to be at home. So, kind of, yeah. how would you help veterans navigate that kind of transition to civilian sector? I don't think there's a blanket answer to that, but I but I would lead off with this. Um, I think one of the challenges and the false perception that veterans can can fall victim to or, or, or fall into the trap of is identity. They think their identity was whatever their job was. Because when you talk about purpose and community, those are those are two separate things. I think where they really start to struggle is they feel they've lost their identity. I would argue back, it was not your identity, it was your job. And um, just like being a parent, a parent is a role that you play. Um, Mm. And just as you guys don't define yourself by your parents anymore, if my role is, oh, I'm I'm a mom. But when your Mm. kids are now grown up and and you're not really mom, you're more like peers, who are you? Have you lost your identity? When you get out of the service, if you lose your identity because you say your identity was I was security forces or as a combat controller, whatever it was that I thought that I was, Mm. I think it helps you to understand that that was a job you that was a role you fulfilled it may be the most important role in your life it may be the most satisfying thing you ever did all things end now i say that because i'm a buddhist and i think most things are ephemeral but so you have to it helps if you can explore how to accept that that's not who i am now i can be something else 
I think the other two things, Zach, to your question that were important was the sense of belonging and community and purpose. If you get out and you don't find, you don't have it, you have to seek it out yeah. now in a new form. One of the things that I do yeah. to help earn my soul back for killing people is I help teach people with disabilities how to ski. So I work with Wasatch Adaptive Sports. It's a great, the small uh, adaptive uh, sports program here at Snowbird where, where I live. And um, like, but I help 85 year old war vets from Korea to 10 year old kids with spina bifida. It's a purpose mm -hmm. for me that has value to me. And there's also a community. I'm working with other instructors who are trying to make lives better for people who deserve some more opportunity than maybe they are normally afforded. And uh, to help those people become more independent provides a new role for me to fill that I find satisfying, a new community that I can belong to, and that purpose. So I can't tell anyone who's listening to this how you can find your own path. Mm -hmm. I got out of the military halfway through my career at 11 years or a third of the way through my career. I can't believe I did 30 years in the military. I have no business <laughs> being in the military for 30 years. But anyway, so when I got out, I, I sort of found my way into some other opportunities. I went to work for a university and I managed an extension campus. And then I came back into the military. So when I got out after with a with a military retirement 30 after 30 years, I I think I was a little bit better prepared. But what I would offer to you, anyone who's listening, who's trying to figure this out or wants to plan ahead, and that's one of the keys, do not wait till three months or six months before you get out to be thinking about this, was I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to write novels, I wanted to hang out with my wife, and I wanted to ski shitloads. Pretty simple plan. Yeah. Now, you could say my new my new role or identity is writer, but I've only, uh, I'm only on, I, I've written several novels, none of which I've published. I've only published two other books, and I'm working on a book this year that I'll probably publish next year. And so, yeah, maybe that's my new role, but at the end of the day, I think the more time you spend thinking about your life and putting it in context, and this comes back to something that all three of us have talked about, you have to read. There are books on this bookshelf. There's, there's a book that saved my life. It's called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. But there are other books on there that helped shape my understanding of the world. David Baum's view on physics, the Tibetan book of living and dying by uh, uh, Sagyal Rinpoche, uh, What the Buddha Taught by... Uh, a guy named Rahula Mapula. There's a lot of things um, that, for me, I spent a lot of time thinking about that stuff and um, finding my own place while finding some other areas or communities that I could belong to. If you don't spend time thinking about it without drinking or smoking too much weed or whatever it is, uh, you're gonna, you won't. There's no shortcut. You have to kind of figure those things out for yourself. But there's a lot of great veteran communities out there. Project One Vet at a Time, uh, POVAT, it's run mm -hmm. by Will Markham, another Silver Star combat controller. He's one of the greatest guys I've ever known. And all it's one vet at a time because they're there to help veterans. Just yeah, don't be alone. Cool. You got to find a community you belong to. And it's not ever going to be the same one you had before, and that's part of life. You, you said a book on your thing back there said, uh, saved your life. Um, if you wouldn't mind, unless it's maybe kind of like a too personal story, uh, how did that book save your life? What were you kind of struggling with? So 
the great irony was I thought about killing myself a bunch of times. And to the outside world, I was a very successful person. At that time, I had a Guinness World Record. I had already published a book. I was a squadron commander. I did all these things. And there have been people, you know, bike hack down, whatever. So other things that people associated with me that externally would seem to validate you. But I was I had a whole bunch of demons from the things that I had done in my case. Other people have yeah. other demons. And that book helped me find my way. So it doesn't matter how I got to the dark pit. What matters to everybody listening is how did I find my way out and back into the light and 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 finding happiness? Because you know what, if you're listening to this, you deserve to be happy. Uh, that book is a it's a it's a non-denominational philosophical approach to just accepting things that have happened for what they are and trying to live more in the moment, not in the past all the time and not worried about the future consistently or, or on a daily basis. And it, it allowed me to see how the burdens I carried internally weren't as big as I made them out to be. Because if you're struggling with something big, it's probably, even if you're thinking of doing something to yourself, that problem's not as big as you think it is. I guarantee it. There are other great things out there in life. That book helped me find my way out of that. And uh, the reason my latest book is called The Power of Awareness is partially an homage to Eckhart Tolle's book, The Power of Now. It's a good title for my book, but for me, it was a way to give back to a guy I'll never meet who saved my life with a book that he wrote. And my goal with that book is to save someone's life. And I actually have had that happen already. Someone told me that I read this book and the next week it saved my life. Man, that's valid for me. That's a validating thing because I'm a very peaceful person. That's awesome. Hearing I've, you explain really all the... Go ahead, Zach. Sorry, Sorry go ahead, Brent. Okay. I was going to say, I really... <laughs> we do that a lot. We We're really each other's heads all the time. I was going to say, uh, I really appreciate you kind of being vulnerable with that and kind of telling us that. And like you said, you had a lot of things externally going great for you. And this just goes to, you know, anyone who's listening or anyone uh, watching that, uh, like, like you said, Dan, everyone's demons are different. Um, you can put off the persona that everything is fine and everything is great, but everyone has their own struggles and um, working through them and finding the light, uh, I think is a hundred percent worth it. Uh, I've, I've heard before, you know, suicide is a, is a permanent response to a temporary issue. So you should um, not do that. You should continue to live on this earth and find happiness. Like Dan said, uh, but no, I, I really appreciate your story there. Um, it's, it's, it's nice to hear. Cause you just said that your book has saved someone else's life. So it, it's good that you stayed alive and wrote the book. Cause then you subsequently saved someone yeah. else. So it, it, it worked and out. If you're listening, out great. You can positively affect other people's lives, no matter where you are. There is somebody you can help. Even if it's just somebody you bump into on the street, man, life's an amazing thing. The odds of any of us the three of us to be on this podcast, to even be alive, and anybody listening, every ancestor you ever had had to live long enough yeah. and be attractive enough to find a mate, <laughs> successfully have sex, and then yeah. raise that young successfully to do the same thing again. The yeah. odds of that are so improbable. And so, like, even if it's just like, today, I am going to have a beer and sit on the balcony if you want, or... Like for me, I get up early and I throw on my skins and skis and I don't care if I got a wing on or not. I just go ski for an hour and a half up the mountain 
mm-hmm. and don't talk to me. And, yeah. and it's like, it is, it is so beautiful out there, but man, you can find beauty in downtown LA. Oh yeah. Yeah. I had flights when I was a, a young airman, uh, you know, working the gate, checking IDs all the time. And oh, I, had, yeah. I had one, I had one flight chief who told me, you know, you are the first thing that like this entire base sees when they start their shift pretty much. Cause they have to go through you. And he was like, you might not think it's that significant. You're, two second to six second interaction with them to you is mundane because you did a thousand hundreds of thousands of times that day um but to them it was a significant part of their day that morning and how can make or break an entire person's day from the very beginning and so when when uh i can't remember his name but i think i want to say it was master on lewis because usually great things come from my old flight chief master on lewis so i'm just going to say it was him and uh so uh when i heard that i was like you know he's right and so when i was at the gate even if i was having a bad day i made sure to be all nice and smiling and hey welcome to kadena air base have a great day hey i hope your day's awesome there's you know some captain i give him the sickest salute he's ever had in his life like all that <laughs> stuff so it, it you're true it does Blue you can have little cap things. Off. yeah his car exploded because it was just so patriotic so yeah. But you know, that's, but that's the value of an individual human life mm-hmm. is to positively affect somebody else. And it's a word I throw out a lot along with vulnerability, which is another word that makes guys cringe is love, man. And that love takes many forms. John For Chapman's sure. sacrifice on the mountain was a form of love. First of all, he saved the lives of all the fuel on the mountain he was with. And then he sacrificed himself on this altar of, of brotherhood and community for 18 guys he didn't even know. Well, one guy on the helicopter, Kerry Miller, was was a teammate of his, but he didn't know Kerry was on there, and he wouldn't mm-hmm. have at that point. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a testament of love. And you know, you can go go just go work at the local VFW and hang out, and uh, like that's that's all it takes. You know, or American Legion if you haven't ever deployed, you just find another community that. There's, there's places you can go that people will understand you and you deserve to find those people. And I've I said this before, but man, you deserve to be happy. Everybody deserves happiness. Everyone. Yeah, I, I will say this, that this, this uh, conversation has gone down paths. I did not know it was going to go down and I'm so glad it has. Cause this, this whole conversation we just are having right now is, uh, is pretty powerful even for me listening to it, you know, and, uh, is that something I, I mean, I'll be real. Yeah, no, I mean, and you know, I'm somebody that can carry a lot of anxiety sometimes and, you know, live in the past for sure. And uh, I need to be better about it, you know? And, um, Dan, I don't know that, I don't think, you know, just how like on point what you were saying for me personally, uh, was, you know, at this time. So maybe that's the whole reason I'm on your podcast is just so you and I can talk. Maybe it's not about anybody else. Yeah. You never know. That's, no, that's, that's true. That's, I love I love your outlook, man, for real. And I've heard you talk <laughs> before about reinventing yourself. And that's something mm-hmm. that I feel like I I um am always trying to do and you know, maybe sometimes it comes from places where, you know, they're unhappy places trying to reinvent my reinvent myself but i think that it can mean more than just trying to get away from something that you you know in your past that brings you down to reinvent yourself because i think it is i really think it's the point of life in in general you know and um correct me if i'm wrong but it isn't like that's that's one of the main tenets of buddhism is is to is reinvention right 
Well, reincarnation, anyway. and, and we don't have to get into the Four Noble Truths or the Eightfold Path. Sure. I don't follow Buddhism that same way as I used to, because mm -hmm. I, 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 and I do consider myself a Buddhist still, but but I, I have now, since at this point in my life, come to believe that there is value in reflecting on and enjoying your past. You don't have to live in the moment all the time and be a, an aesthetic Buddhist in saffron robes and never think about the past or the future. <laughs> yeah. Those things do have value to you. And, you know, for me, reinvention, and this is kind of to your point, uh, Brandon, it's not about escaping my demons so much anymore as there are things I would still like to do. I yeah. would like, you know, I, I released my first single with me and my bandmates, Bent Brass, which I thought was mm -hmm. a pretty kick-ass name for band. Um, I heard it on Spotify. Oh, oh cool. So, yeah. like, we, like, <laughs> I wanted to write a song. And the reason I wanted to write a song about war and 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 three guys go into war and one guy doesn't come back and then one guy eats a bullet and what's the story for the guy who's left holding that bag but the problem was whenever you get these patriotic songs like lee greenwood's proud to be an american it's a great song you guys can i know you'll agree with this no one's ever played that song while deployed who the hell is going to play that song while you're deployed? We play rock and roll, yeah. or you yeah. play rap, or you play something else that speaks right. to you, but you're not going to play patriotic songs. And for me, I'm like, this has to be a rock and roll song. And, uh, man, we spent a year on it. I, it cost a lot of money. So far, we've made $75. That'll offset <laughs> like the six grand we spent on the song. So, you know, totally. but it doesn't matter. It's like, yeah. this is an experience for me. And I, I'm really in pursuit of like a 21st century renaissance experience. You know, I'm not Leonardo da Vinci. I'm not going to paint the Mona Lisa. I'm not going to, you know, work on the Sistine Chapel or, or design an airplane before they exist. But you know what you can do in this era? You can release something positive on social media or you can write a song and just release it on Spotify. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not going to make any money on the song. What the hell do I care? I just wanted yeah. to make a point and I wanted to have the experience. Books are yeah. the same way. Writing screenplays yeah. is the same way. Flying my little speed wing. It's all the same stuff. It's just yeah. the opportunity to do things that you want. But, you know, to going back to resilience for just a moment. Of course. One of the things I realized, because a lot of people would seek me out for resilience, and I haven't even written a book on that, but I, I think I'm going to. I always found it interesting. And after a while, I realized I was presenting a false perception of myself because everybody thought I'm a very high energy, positive guy. And I am. I'm a really I'm a really high energy dude. But I had never really shared that I'd almost killed myself. The only person who knew that was my wife. Mm. And uh, and I realized I needed to start sharing that. And as soon as I started sharing the, the reality of all my flaws and the fact that I was insecure and I suffer from imposter syndrome because I don't. I'm just an average dude who likes to read books. That's what I, that's my secret identity book reader is that it, it, you no can. Way. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's true. Um, <laughs> you know, to, to, you can, well, I don't know where I was going to go with that. There was somewhere else I was going to go. And I think I've wandered off into the desert and lost myself there. No, I, well, no the point is re reinventing yourself just kind of seems to be a natural thing that happens in life. And no matter, you don't have to have a reason, like you said, you know, you weren't trying to make money off of the song that you put out on Spotify, but it was for you. And it was a venture that you wanted to do and you felt like you needed to do. And I think that's the point is you're evolving in some way by doing that because you're, you're fulfilling something in yourself. And you can always do that. I think mm -hmm. was, 
at the end, probably that's where I was going to ride this pony back to the stable is that, you know, <laughs> as you get older in life, which we all do, your perspective changes and your values change and your desires change, you know? And so you should go with those things, but, but never stop exploring and never stop trying to do stuff. And it could, doesn't, you don't have to cure cancer. Yeah. None of, you know, we're just three guys having a conversation. We've all done some, we're very fortunate to have done some amazing things because just by virtue of being in the U S air force, we can do things that 90 plus percent of the U S population cannot do. Doesn't matter your AFC. Yeah, that's yeah. another narrow dividing, but it's a very narrow dividing. The fact is, you've separated yourself from ninety percent of the population. If you listen to this and you've joined the military, you've done something selflessly and 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 greater than yourself than ninety percent of the people you're ever going to know. Man, mm -hmm. that's really cool. It is. It is. You put talk about it in that perspective. Yeah. I say that to my applicants. I tell them, look, when, when you join the Air Force, uh, you're joining, uh, we, we say less than 2% of the entire U.S. population ever serves this country. So we, we say you're going to join the 2%, and it's it's in solidarity and in service to the 98 that you'll never meet. Um, and kind of what you're talking about with the, uh, you know, just do things that you love. That's why Brandon and I are here doing this podcast. We love doing this. I love having conversations with them. I love having conversations with new new uh, new guests who bring great perspectives. So it's it's just a lot of fun for us too. And uh, I've learned a whole bunch since we started this podcast. Way more than I I think I would have learned. But uh, it's, it's it's been great. Really. I, I thought I've you were awesome. doing it for the money. Aren't you, aren't you guys totally. doing this for the money? Yes. What money? <laughs> yeah. 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 I've gotten in the habit, like at the end of these episodes, being like, "Oh man, that was that was like my favorite episode we've done." And I have said that so many times because Zach, you're so right. Like we talk to people, it's just always I learn something new and gain a different perspective from somebody else. And I, I've walked away so many times talking to our guest and just been mm -hmm. wowed. You know what I mean? And but yeah, <laughs> not just gushing wanna... over. <laughs> I want to get to another perspective, though. I like this nice transition. Uh, your book, Dan, The Power of Awareness, right? So it explores the importance of situational awareness in both military and civilian life. Uh, I'm someone who deals with uh, hyper-awareness uh, to the point where it's bad, to where I think like everyone's going to kill me all of a sudden, and I'm like, that's not good, and I have to like relax. Um could you share some practical tips or exercises that listeners can employ to enhance their own situation awareness without making them think that the whole world's out to get them? Yeah. Uh, so for me, the foundation for personal safety, and, and my book's based on six rules, but the, mm -hmm. the two foundational rules that are really important are situational awareness and intuition. Intuition is often overlooked. But to go back to situational awareness, which I think is is the biggest foundation, my approach is different, I think, than almost any other safety expert uh, that I've that I've encountered. Not because I'm smart, I just think I look at this differently. Because when you look at SA, as we all throw out that term, mm -hmm. I break it into two components. There's your situation, and then there's your appropriate level of awareness. And what I help, what I think will help people to make snap decisions, which are important to make when you're trying to figure out if you're in danger or how aware you should be is that your situation is external to you so 100 percent outside of you whether you feel good about it or want it to be different it's going to be what it is and if you start to learn to process that 
And I break it down into, hey, is it familiar or is it unfamiliar to you? Am I at, am I in downtown Bangkok at two o'clock in the morning walking the street and I don't speak Thai? Mm. Um, or and is it safe or unsafe? And those are value judgments that you are making and applying to your external situation. Safe or unsafe and familiar and unfamiliar. If you just stick with those, that helps a layperson, which is my whole goal, start to understand it. But you then apply that to, well, how aware should I be? If I'm in Bangkok at two o'clock in the morning as a six foot white guy, I need to be very aware. If I'm at home watching TV with my wife in my house with doors locked, I can be blissfully unaware. So yeah. it helps to break it into these, those two components. And, and I do recommend the book. I don't know about how good a writer I am, but I, I believe in the process that I've laid out for people. Um, but the other thing I like to talk about is intuition. And intuition is, is one of the most amazing things that a sentient being can have. And animals have it too, I, I'm telling you. But the problem with being a modern human is because there's never been a safer time to be a human than now, you're less likely to be sold into slavery, have all your possessions stolen, or be in a war now than at any other time in human history. Especially the byproduct the of that is you learn to override your intuition all the time because when you ignore it, nothing bad happens. That works fine right up until the time when it's speaking to you and you ignore it and something mm. bad happens. And so mm. what I teach people is you have to learn how to reconnect with your intuition. Because if your intuition is speaking to you, and this is the last part of the, I guess, lesson I can convey, there's two things that are absolutely guaranteed to be true. And I rarely speak in absolutes. But if your intuition is speaking to you, the first thing that's absolutely true is your body's responding to something. You may not consciously know what it is. You may have a bad feeling in your gut, literally in your gut, but something is there and your body's trying to tell you there's something's there. And the second thing is, it is 100% in your interest to pay attention to that first thing because you may ultimately decide, I'm gonna ignore it and I'm gonna make a judgment call and I'm gonna walk across this dark parking lot tonight. But if you do, that's a conscious decision. The problem people get into is they're like, oh, I got a bad feeling, eh, whatever. And they move across the parking lot. The next thing you know, Ted Bundy's trying to pull you into a car. The great serial killer for people who mm -hmm. don't know who he is. And so for me, oh, that's the foundation of personal safety. Yeah. Your, uh, your awareness level, how you're talking about, like if you're in Bangkok at 2 a.m. or if you were in your home, that could, actually could be a callback to a previous guest we had, Rick Prado. He was talking about how he had like the levels, like red, yellow, green and like during certain missions he was like everyone better be in like yellow because if you're in green i don't want you on my team and that's when they were like in a really tense yeah. situation all the time but no, that's, yeah, interesting. that's the cooper the cooper color code and yeah, it's been used a lot i didn't i chose not I, I i talk about that in the book because it's a great it's a great any way that you can start to to determine your own level of awareness but mm -hmm. i didn't feel that was descriptive enough for a lay person or a civilian, which is who I really want to help, which yeah. is, hey, listen, you can be unaware. You can be just open to your environment. I'm taking input. I can be really attentive to my environment. So I'm, I'm, I'm queuing more on things or I can feel I'm in immediate danger and I'm hyper alert. Back to your mm -hmm. point, Jack. So for me, those are the levels I use because I like to apply, provide some description to go along with them. And I, I believe that helps people to better put themselves in that because it's very easy to get away with, was well, this yellow or red? But if I say you should be attentive to your environment or you feel you're in immediate danger, those are descriptive terms 
that a layperson can go, I think I'm in immediate danger. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you're not sure, the answer is you're always somewhere more dangerous than you think. Because yeah. those are the first two rules of my book. The third rule of my book is you have to ask the question, do I have a problem? Mm-hmm. If the answer is yes, then you need to make a plan, which is the fourth rule of my book. And then you have to act on that plan. It's a way of stepping people through avoiding problems. I don't teach martial arts. I don't, you know, you can carry a gun if you want, but I don't think people have to. I don't advocate for that because I think mm-hmm. most people have no business carrying a gun. But do a lot of people who carry guns should not be carrying guns. That's but fair. if you want to carry a gun, go ahead. But I'll tell you something. If your default is I've got my gun, a gun is a tool to fix a problem. My toilet breaks. I need a wrench to fix it. Someone's trying to attack me. I can use my gun as a tool. Mm-hmm. If you're already using a tool, you're screwed because you didn't avoid the problem. And my entire yeah. approach to personal safety is avoid it, evade it, or escape it. Because my favorite plan is run away. And I learned that from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah. I've, t- <laughs> I've talked with my uh, – I have a younger brother, Calvin, who's a very anti-gun individual. And I've had like right. talks with him and stuff. And I'm a very pro-gun individual. But I've discussed with him, like, if I was ever in a situation to where, like, I actually needed to draw my personal carry firearm, I'm not going to be the one who's going to go, like, fight the active shooter. I'm just drawing the gun because the situation has elevated to firearms are being used. And I'm now just going to use my gun to get me and my immediate family or people with me away from the situation. Kind of like what you were saying is... Like, I'm using it as the tool to leave. I'm not going to then enter the problem further. Um, that's me off-duty, of course. If I'm on-duty, then yes, I'm obligated, and I will definitely go towards the threat. Um, right. But, yeah, that's kind of what uh, you're getting at. When I explain that to him, he's like, okay, that makes more sense. Because, you know, in his mind, he was thinking that everyone that's like a concealed carry weapon holder is just waiting to, for someone to break in their house or waiting for the active shooter to kick off so they can just go, you know, finally shoot their firearm or whatever. And I'm like, no, that's not how most of us actually are. Most of us are just kind of in it because there's a possibility and we're going to use it to escape. We're not, not going to use it to go to yeah, engage. I, and I, I agree because, you know, I'm certainly not anti-gun. I, I made my living yeah. with a gun like you guys. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. And at one time, like I, I was among the best combat shooters in the world because I was training with Delta Force and SEAL Team Six. Like that's that was my that, those were my people, and and the other combat mm-hmm. controllers I worked with. But but in, but you know, and I've got like 17 weapons here. We got matching 1911s under our bed. You come in our house, my wife will shoot you probably faster than I will. And so, but but to <laughs> me, nice that's not personal safety. That's personal defense. Mm-hmm. Two separate yeah. things. Yeah, they are. And my exactly. whole book is. Listen, don't put yourself in that situation. And you can you can save yourself from those situations just by being aware. And if you're walking around with this thing in front of your face, like and earbuds in, you've already you've already eliminated your two best senses for early warning, sight and sound. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you know, and I don't I and I teach this all the time. I say, you know, I'm not telling you not to use your phone. I'm telling you to think about the times when you shouldn't use it. Use it as a mm-hmm. default every day, get on it all you want, but there's times you shouldn't. That's when I really want you to go, yeah. is this place familiar, unfamiliar, or safe, or unsafe? And how aware do I need to be? And then by the way, as, yeah. soon, as, something, yeah. as soon as I feel something funny, in that instant, that's the only time your intuition can save your life is when you stop when it first speaks to you. 
Because once it's spoken, mm -hmm. it falls silent again because you're already thinking in your head about a grocery list or the fight you had with your boss or why the Air Force doesn't recognize its heroes, whatever, something. <laughs> you're, you're living in your head and not being very aware, right? So yeah. don't do that. That's my that's my whole that's the whole purpose with that book. And uh, I'm really pleased with the book and, and I we founded the Power of Awareness Institute because I know most people don't read books, but they will watch an online safety program on their phone. And then we, there's practical exercises on there. We talk about how to do simple surveillance detection. So how you're being followed by your typical criminal douchebag, you know, those kinds mm -hmm. of things, you know, how to, how to make a deliberate plan and how to make a hasty plan and how to, you know, how to think about a restaurant when you're in it. And, you know, the things that just sort of matter in daily life. And uh, you, you just go to mypoa.org or Google the Power of Awareness Institute. People can find it. And like, I'm not pitching for that. But if you want more information, you can get it there or or yeah. pick up the book. Yeah. Of yeah, course, we'll I'm the, a fan of. We'll put the link on our Instagram for everybody so they can find you guys. Yeah, cool. Yeah. But uh, and I appreciate that. But but really, as we're talking about this, what I really want to do is like just share information with people because mm -hmm. one of the things I did when I published the book, my agent and the publisher was like, well. Are you going to put some of these public these safety things on your website? I'm like, yeah, and all the resources in my book, of course, they're free. Yeah. Go to my website. Like, I'm not here to. You don't have to buy my book to yeah. get the information. Read the <laughs> there's better information in the book, but like, my responsibility is to like help people be safe. Not the gatekeeper to knowledge. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm not a fan of any of that, man. Mm -mm. I yeah, think life exactly. is about sharing as well. Like, yeah. and, and yeah. the more you share with other people the better your life will be. This goes back to a veteran. When you get out, if you're struggling, you know what else you can do? Find another veteran you think is struggling. If you help them, you're going to immediately feel like you're in a better space and more confident and probably happier. You find somebody else in need and give it, give to them, you're going to feel a lot better. That's my, it's dad what, it used to say, my dad used to say the same thing to me all the time. And his name's also Dan, so maybe there's a connection here. But... He used to He's always a cool say, guy, obviously. obviously, obviously, he, he would always tell me when I was little and I was like, feel my crap or I was like mad. He'd be like, go do something good for someone else. So I, he would like, if, when I was really little, he'd make me do it, but it would still be something good. I have to do for someone else. Like go down the street, like mow, uh, I can't remember her name, but some old lady's lawn or I'd clean up <laughs> the leaves at the school park or whatever, but I would go do something. And afterwards you'd be like, how do you feel now? Zach? Like, I feel great, dad. You were right. Yeah, whatever. You're right again, Dan. <laughs> but right you know again. what? You can also go skiing and come home and go, I feel really good. So that's you know, true. That's it. That. That's Do it. something for yourself too. There's nothing wrong with that, man. My my Dan doesn't ski, but uh, I could see him enjoying it. <laughs> it's just those selfless acts of service, right? Yeah, exactly. Sometimes and they're not even and service makes it sound grandiose. It's just true. Giving something to somebody that you think could could use it. I tend to go down to more simple terms because I'm not that smart of a guy, but I, I, I just think you see somebody, you're like, man, that person's having a shitty day. And, and you know, and Zach, mm -hmm. you said this, like, there's the salute, but when they're conditioned to get that thing and move forward, you know, that's a harder connection. But you see somebody in a parking lot trying to put something in a car or, you know, mm -hmm. to help somebody, man, there's nothing, as a human, there's very little you can do that's better than helping another human. I can agree with that. Thanks. So obviously, um, not to shift gears too hardcore, but you've done some pretty cool things throughout your career. Um, 
you know, are there anything that uh, you'd like to, that we could talk about, you'd like to share from you know, your time, you know, as a combat controller or the, uh, being in the army as an infantryman or anything like that, those, those cool guys stories? I, uh, I mean, it depends what you guys want to talk about. You know, I've, I've, I'm very fortunate. I've covered a lot of ground and mostly I felt that I was surrounded by other people that were better than me. I was a middle of the pack guy. I, I felt my whole career. I found a middle of the pack writer. And, but you know, I mean, there's just the general population. This, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't actually think my stories are that cool. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I'm happy to answer questions, but I I'll don't, say, you know, I'll, you know, I'll say this, like, um, I don't, Always, when I've talked to, I feel like I've talked to on this podcast a lot of people that have done a lot cooler things than I have, right? So, you know, I sit here and I talk because they sound, you know, fantastic to me or like these things you that um, people that have, have done these things sound, um, you know, like very humble people and they don't like talking about their, their exploits, right? But uh, the movie, Black Hawk Down, right, is, is everyone can relate to or know you know especially if you're in our generation growing up with with these movies that have come out and um you know that's known as operation gothic serpent right um and that you you were um present during that that situation is in um you know what role did you play like how were you involved um you know if you could break that down yeah well so yeah i was one of the so when that mission came down uh, it first came over to Delta Force as a potential mission, and I was on alert over there as a combat controller. So I was working at Delta, and we practiced through the spring of '93, and then actually we rotated over to the next, you know, group of guys who were going to that doing their thing. And so I handed it off to two other combat controllers, Jeff Gray and Dave Schnorr. And um, but when I did, but, but ultimately I'll spare you the long story on how I ended up getting recalled from a training trip. Uh, and I ended up deploying. So, but I was the combat controller, uh, and you know there was there was a couple of elements. It was primarily a Delta-driven mission supported by Task Force 160th, best helicopter pilots in the world for combat, and, uh, and then the Rangers supplied us with a battalion uh, for perimeter security, which you know started to integrate it. And, and as I said earlier, I think we there was four steels that we brought two two-man sniper teams from Steel Team Six. And there was a handful of combat controllers and, and a couple of PJs for the CSAR, the combat mm-hmm. search and rescue package. And that's really, that's what Task Force Ranger, which was what the Task Force was called, that executed the mission that everyone knows as Black Hawk Down. And it was, we did a number of missions over there. And I did some other stuff, too. In addition to the, to the raids we did, I ended up doing foot patrols and some other things in Somalia. But my job was to be a combat controller and, and integrate, you know, stuff on the ground with the air platforms we had, which at, at that time were just Black Hawk helicopters and some age six little birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, uh, another little, we had another helicopter that was providing, um, video, which was very new in 1993. Yeah. So that was, you know, and that day was different though. That mission was, was different than the other missions we had done because typically we only rolled out at night because we had night vision goggles, 1993, 30 years ago, Nobody else did, which, you know, anything that gives you an advantage, that's what you do. And this was a daytime mission. Uh, General Garrison, who is the commander of JSOC and the task force commander, and a guy I have a great respect for, you know, he he's like, we're going to pull the trigger on this thing today because we think we can get these guys that were important enough to risk it. And uh, and we did get those guys. One of the one of the 
misperceptions that I love to dispel about this mission was it was 100% successful operationally. People are like, oh, the failure of Somalia. And I'm like, hey, screw you. Like, I challenge any other country to put 200 guys in the middle of a city that's experiencing a civil war where everyone's armed. A, a million people, man, and have even not just one guy walk out alive, but successfully prosecute a mission. Yeah. Now, the mission went sideways. The Somalis, to their credit, were working very hard on how to shoot down helicopters, and they shot down four that day. And so... You know, they knew they could anchor us to something. And, uh, man, it went sideways from there, and it becomes, um, instead of a, a strong point of assault, it becomes a rescue mission around two helicopters that are in the city. And mm -hmm. we ended up with support from 10th Mountain Division, and we had support from the Pakistanis. We had support from the Malaysians. Like, it became this ad hoc second push to go out and, and rescue the guys we had stranded in the city. And it was just a hell of a gunfight, man. I mean, it it's still... It's the, those of us who were there have experienced there's a halo effect around having been there. It's just interesting that people still talk about this 30 years later. I, I find that interesting. Um, but it, it, man, it was certainly defining for me. I mean, it was a very violent 18 hour gunfight and uh, I'd never experienced anything. I'd been in gunfights before that and I'd never experienced anything like it since obviously either. Yeah. And uh, and it changed the course of my life, as I think it did for many people, including the, the guys who died and including the 1500 possibly Somalis that that died in this gunfight, too. You know, there's it left a lot of devastation in its wake. And I think one of the other reasons besides it's a very captivating story, 200 guys in the middle of a city of a million people, but it changed U.S. foreign policy for a, nearly a decade. And it also created things. Things came out of that gunfight. The multi, the cry precision multicam uniform came out of that gunfight. No the blood way. clot bandage, as we know it on the battlefield, as it came into service in Afghanistan and Iraq, was born from that one gunfight. A reinvention of how to do urban tactics and you know fighting, which were hard-earned lessons by the Vietnam era veterans who fought in in way, you know, during the Tet Offensive or, you know, the things that happened there, like we had to relearn those things, you know? You don't want to stand right against the wall. You want to be six inches or 12 inches out because as weird as it sounds, bullets well, will travel along the wall. Mm -hmm. like, like we weren't thinking about that, even Delta Force. We weren't thinking about those things to the extent that we, well, maybe we should have is too strong a word. Um, we weren't ready for that stuff yet. And uh, I think that's why all those reasons, and Ridley Scott made a brilliant movie. You know, it's a, it's a testament. I, I've only ever seen it twice, but. Um, that was my next question. But I know so how it is. Wash. Yeah. No, you know, it's funny. When I, when it came out, I went to go see it. I steeled myself. And as I was watching the movie, I was like, these are just actors. Yeah, they're not, yeah. Yeah. these are just actors. And, and it's a good movie. It's graphically very realistic. The plot's like 60% accurate because it's a dramatization. But then you fast forward like, I don't know, 14 years or something. And a buddy of mine came to town. He's like, I really want to watch this movie with you. And I thought, yeah, okay, sure. And like halfway through, I had to get up and leave. And oh, damn. I don't know if it's because I'm an old guy now or what the case was, but I, I didn't want to watch the rest of the movie. But I don't watch war movies. I don't read war books. Not. It's the same reason I, I didn't want to write... Alone at dawn. It's mm -hmm. not 
that's what I did. It goes back to this identity. It's not who I am. It's what I did. And yeah. mm -hmm. uh, it's not who yeah. I am anymore. I'm very proud of it. And, and I honor the legacy of all the guys that we've lost, you know, from, uh, you know, the 10th Mountain, the Delta Force guys, the 160th guys we lost, the Rangers guys that we lost. People forget that there was some there was some Pakistani and Malaysian guys that lost their lives and that that were supporting us that lost mm -hmm. their lives in that mission, too. So anyway. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and you know, I know it's become kind of a colloquial thing to say, but like genuinely thank you for everything that you have done for our country. You guys, too. We're all in the same business. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm, it's an honor for me to be on your podcast. I think you guys are doing great stuff. Uh, we haven't talked appreciate about it. Prometheus or the advancement of, of human civilization, but that's okay. Well, just because we, your title doesn't mean we have to talk about it. That's true. No, we, you know, we have brought a lot of knowledge, though. I'll say that, and that's the whole point of the the fire analogy. Ah, you know, you're yeah, talking about reinventing course, yes. reinventing yes. yourself, and you know, uh, dealing with it's not me, it's what I did. That kind of thing. Those are all things that I think that anybody can relate to. It doesn't matter, you know, if you're somebody who's been in the military for thirty years, or you spent twenty years in a in a bad relationship, or whatever. You know, I it just has application across every board as a human being. I agree. One of the things I, I talk about when I talk about resilience and I talk about the power awareness and, 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 and experiencing trauma, I don't think there's any difference between people who have survived uh, like sexual assault, gunfights, or car crash. All those things produce trauma and emotional challenges. Um, and one's not worse or better than the other. I'm not here to prioritize or, or make value mm -hmm. judgments on those because it's a different experience for everybody when mm -hmm. you have these these traumatic experiences what matters is how you move forward with your life because for me again it comes back to if you whether you had a bad experience or not or you were in a bad marriage i man i was in a really shitty marriage now i'm in a wonderfully happy marriage and uh man it's you deserve to be happy. You, you mm -hmm. deserve to not live in those ex experiences. You, just, you deserve to find your way out. And it's worth it to do so. A bad yeah. marriage is just as traumatic as deploying to some environments around the world because every day it's a battlefield. That's true. That's true. I mean, just speaking from experience as well, I've, I have had a, a failed marriage as well. So I understand I'm now a very happy relationship with my wife. We have a son. You know, it's it's it is it changes your perspective on things. But, um, you know, one thing I like to ask everybody is, you know, we weren't all, you know, I'm 36. You know, I wasn't 36 my whole life. You know, what what is something that you would go back and tell young Dan, you know, standing there on the cusp of going to, you know, boot camp in the army? What's something that you would look back and say to him going in? It doesn't have to be one thing, but just what wisdom would you pass on to young Dan Schilling? Find the best people you can they, that you can emulate from and also enjoy yourself because we're so focused on accomplishing things. Americans are frenetic. It's why we invent things like the airplane and the atomic bomb, you know, small shit. So, <laughs> but what's, what's born of that is like this purpose-driven sort of frenetic energy and like you need to enjoy yourself. But man, the other thing is you find people that you respect and they'll make you better and, and find people that you enjoy because that's what makes it worth it. I like that. And Rob said something very similar about finding people that'll make you better. And noticing a trend. 
Yeah, it's true, man. You know, you find you are who you are the company you keep, and I know that's that's a mm-hmm. you know a phrase, but it's it's, it's extremely true. Yeah, but it's extremely yeah. true. It is. My my circle is much smaller now because it can be. definitely, and I've got friends all around the world, but there's fewer of them. Right, and mm-hmm. uh, the people I value. I mean, there's other great people I know that I consider friends, like Hazard. You're gonna have Hazard Lee on your podcast. Mm-hmm. That guy is a human dynamo and I love him to death. And he came out awesome, and spent a day. Man. We went skiing this winter. He had like, uh, he had like one day off. He's like, I want to come skiing. I'm like, come out, man. I'll get you a free pass. We'll go ski. And so we hung out for a day and we talked a bunch, but you know, I consider him a friend, but my real close friends, that circle is very small, but mm-hmm. it's, it's worldwide. I got friends in Australia. I got friends in Austria. I got friends in Sweden. You know, Same. it's just, yeah, one of my best. best friends who legitimately is a brother to me is is German. And I met him. We worked, you know, law enforcement together for years, always together. And that guy, I, you know, I have I saw him a year ago, had happened to go back to Germany. But for the rest of my life, you know, Dirk will be a brother to me, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's something I've learned as I've gotten older is your your circle does shrink because, you know, you you learn to kind of keep out all, all this stuff that can bring you down, you know, and you find, like you said, those people that make you better and are talking about and doing the things that you know you want to do and are good. And that make you happy. But I have mm-hmm. to say, make you happy. Dirk sounds like a suspiciously non-German name. Man. Like, are you sure yeah. he's German? I, I'm yeah. pretty sure, you know, I, yeah, he, uh, he would, I don't mean, I don't want to butcher his language, but Dirk, Right and his last name. Dirk oh yeah, Stug- okay, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. There you go, Dirk, Dirk Stuger, you know, and yeah, okay, uh, I'll, yeah, I'll accept, yeah. I'll accept that one. <laughs> He's very German for sure. Like I would, you should see his garage. It's just full of those, you know, German soccer flags and and beer and everything that's quintessentially German. Yeah. So, but no, he's he's an awesome guy. Yeah, those are good things too. Soccer uh-huh. and and beer in Germany. Definitely, Zach, you uh. Do you got any follow-up questions? Close up? I uh, no. I think uh um you, you talked about your German friend. I, I have a I have an Asian friend who his name is Nagamine. And uh in Japan they don't uh they don't understand sarcasm very well. Like no, they don't them, do that well there. Sarcasm is considered like lying, so it's like dishonorable and stuff. Right. And uh I was working at the gate with Nagamine and I was trying to explain him the terminology YOLO, right? You only live once. And so I was trying to explain to him like how that works and like when you would use it. And I got it across to be like, you would use YOLO when you do something you're not supposed to do, but you do it anyway and you get away with it. That'd be like a YOLO moment. And he was like, which is also dishonorable. Yeah. yeah. And he was like, he's like, okay, okay. So, we're working the night shift. There's not a lot of traffic. Checking IDs, and it's not my shift, so I'm kind of just sitting in the thing, like kind of just staring out or whatever. And Nagamine comes back into the gate shack, all happy, excited. And he goes, "Smith, Smith, I did it! I did it!" And I was like, "Did what?" Nagamine, what are you talking about? He's like, "I did YOLO. I just YOLO'd." And I was like, "That's awesome. What'd you do?" And then I look behind him. And there's a really mad captain. <laughs> I, I immediately jump up. And I walk up, and I was like, uh, "Sorry, captain. Uh, what, what what did he do?" And he was like, "He just threw my card back at me and said YOLO." And I was like, I, I'm, "I'm sorry. I'm sorry, captain. I was just trying to teach him 
terminology. Uh, you have a good day. And the captain's like, yeah, whatever. And he even, even slipped me back. He was so mad. He just drove oh, off. I never man. heard, never got in trouble or anything about it. I go back in. I was like, no, good meaning. What did you do? He's like, you told me YOLO is when you do something you're not supposed to do, but you do it anyway. And so when the captain handed me his ID card, instead of saluting him, I threw it at him and I said, YOLO. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh my God. He was so it? proud, he, though. He, he missed that final component, which is then you get away with it. Yeah. No, he yeah, was true. It's an important last step. He was so proud, though, and he was so happy. And so I was like, yeah, you kind of did it right, but please don't do it to any other officers. Thanks. <laughs> so that, that's my German, your uh, counterpart, Nagamide. Yeah. He's like he's like 70-something now. He was like 60-something when I worked with him, and he that makes it a, even better. That makes it yeah. even better. Because he was like a little kid. It was so yeah. funny. Well, the only story I can that I think compares to this that I like to give guys brief over is when you go to the Australian SAS, um, their compound is outside Perth. It's a place called Swanborn. Their range, their firing range, backs up against the Indian Ocean. They've got their own sort of private beach, but it's public mm-hmm. land when they're not shooting. But it's a nudist beach. And I love to give those guys flack. I'll tell them, like, there's all kinds of people that are gathering to be on your little private beach. And uh, I just find that very humorous that you guys have that in your own, inside your actual terrain you own. There's this nudist beach where people come and hang out in close proximity, if that makes any sense. Mm. That's not on purpose <laughs> at all. And the Aussies are like, you know, YOLO. there's a, yeah, that's right, I guess. So anyway, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that compares, that but it's one of the things where it's like you can give your friends grief over and uh, yeah. I always enjoyed that. It is good to it's awesome. pull punches and talk shit sometimes for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dan, well, listen, thank you guys, very much for man, talking I, to me. Yeah, I appreciate the time. Um, I, best of luck with the podcast and everybody Thank who's you. listening. You know, thanks for tuning in, and I, I hope it had some value as well as entertainment. But if I could leave everybody with one thing, it's like, man, find your way to happiness because you deserve it. I legitimately, the name of this podcast episode is going to be "You Deserve to Be Happy" with Dan Schilling. I swear to God. Fair enough. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I butchered the crap out of our uh, shameless plug at the beginning. There's something to say real fast, real fast to Red Clover Coffee. Thank you for sponsoring us. Came with fire for 10% off. Uh, Dan, again, thank you very, very much for, for talking to us tonight. Um, very insightful. One of my favorite episodes because it, it really again. was. So, again, yeah, <laughs> because it is. So, thank you, Dan. Enjoy the skiing tomorrow. Hopefully, you get to. And uh, everybody else, have a good night. Cheers, y'all. See ya.